0: Welcome to the Bodywise podcast. My name is Barry Murphy, Research and Policy Officer for Bodywise. Today's episode focuses on research looking at the experiences of siblings and partners. Welcome, Rachel and Hannah. Can you please introduce yourself to our podcast?
1: Yeah, sure. So, my name is Hannah Cribben. I am currently doing the clinical psychology doctorate training. So, I'm halfway through that training in Oxford in the UK. But before I started that training, I worked in the eating disorders research team at King's College London, um, which is where I worked on the research that we're going to talk about today. And I guess just to mention who else was in that team who's not here today. So we had Carol Khan, Janet Treasure, Pam McDonald, Dasha Nichols and Erica Cheney, as well as help from lots of other people. But yeah, they were sort of the
2: main team with Rachel as well. Thanks, Hannah. So I'm Rachel Batchelor and I supported the project we're talking about today as a research assistant. I currently work in child and adolescent mental health, um, community mental health services. And I'll be joining Hannah on the doctorate in Oxford from September as well.
0: Thank you very much. So today we're, we're focusing on your research in the British Journal of Psychiatry Open which focuses on siblings and partners and their experience of supporting someone with an eating disorder. What prompted you to investigate this topic and how much research is there already on these two particular groups?
1: I guess the research in general tells us that family relationships are impacted when a member of the family has an eating disorder. Um, It can affect other family members' physical and mental health but most of that research is within parents and other common kind of groups like siblings and partners are hugely overlooked in the literature. So a recent systematic review, it's two years old now, but still pretty recent. And it included all published papers to do with siblings who had a sibling with an eating disorder. There was only 26 papers published and that was kind of since the start of time, which is pretty small number of papers really and from kind of our professional experience from members of the team who work with siblings and partners they've identified some really specific issues that um, siblings and partners can experience and some of that is covered in the paper so things like lost intimacy with partners siblings kind of having their own worries or concerns that they feel are not addressed or kind of feel guilt in dwelling on their own needs because of how unwell their sister or brother is. There was a really good paper published by Harvard Medical School who kind of touched on some of the emotional experiences of siblings, things like confusion, jealousy, anger, sadness, loneliness, and guilt. So I guess some of that research is really highlighting how important this topic is. And then as professionals, we notice that there was some recently published guidelines Um, So published by BEAT, which is the UK's leading eating disorder charity, and also the Academy for Eating Disorders. They outlined the standards of care that individuals caring for a loved one in the UK should receive. And we were really interested to find out if siblings and partners actually feel as if those standards are being met. So that was sort of part of this project. And I suppose it's helpful just to mention that this project was part of a larger scale national project that we rolled out, which was an online survey to gather the experiences of those caring for a loved one with an eating disorder in the UK. And we wanted to sort of establish how their experiences align with the guidelines that have been published.
2: And I think like like Hannah said, sort of siblings and partners are often quite overlooked. So a lot of the research in the field for carers um, and support services as well, focuses typically on parents despite a lot of research coming out showing that the adverse effects of being a carer for a loved one with a serious mental health condition such as an eating disorder definitely aren't limited limited to parents we wanted to give those those groups a voice as well
0: thank you what would you say then is the the benefit of co-production and for for anyone listening who might not be familiar with the term can you explain it please
2: Yeah. So I think participatory sort of methodologies and co-production are really important in research. And very broadly, it's essentially viewing people with lived experience as co-researchers. So rather than doing kind of research about people, it's more doing it with them instead. And it helps to ensure that the research is sort of relevant and important to the lives of the people that it's essentially hoping to impact. So in our research, for example, we had a patient and public involvement group, which our colleague Carol led on in the project. And this was made up of professionals and carers. And they were involved in all stages of research, including designing the topic guide for the focus groups in the study. And some members of our team also have lived experience of caring for a loved one with an eating disorder. And they were viewed as experts by experience through throughout and involved in all stages of the research including kind of data analysis and manuscript writing and this helped to ensure that our project remained sort of representative as well as sensitive to the groups who might be reading it who were personally affected and we felt that co-production was especially important in this project as siblings and partners are so commonly overlooked as caring caring groups so there's very little as Hannah said research within within this area so we're still very much learning about this topic so it's really important that people who have the personal experience and that was really important to us for them to be involved it helps to ensure as well that our our project remained beneficial to siblings and parents so they were very much kept at the the centre of it and in our in our minds whilst we're researching and hopefully That will sort of continue as well in the big bigger project that Hannah mentioned that this research project will help to inform.
0: I know sometimes adults experiencing eating disorder often feel left out of the kind of the wider conversation around eating disorders. So what was the the age range of the the person living with it in, in your study?
1: There was both adults and kind of adolescent. I don't think there was anyone younger than adolescent in the study. but there wasn't an age range in terms of the person living with the eating disorder yeah
0: can you bring us through then some of the the themes that you uncovered in the research and also some of the emotion emotions experienced by siblings and partners as well
1: yes it's a big question so with qualitative analysis often the results can seem quite overwhelming i think to to look at and to read so i suppose Yeah, please do look at our paper for the full kind of overview of everything that we found. But we've we analyzed um, all of the focus groups and found four main themes. So they were role specific needs for siblings and partners, challenges that were encountered by siblings and partners, then accounts of service provision and family support for those siblings and partners, and then more generic carer needs and helpful strategies or approaches. So I suppose that last one is not maybe so specific to siblings and partners, because, of course, they are going to also face generic needs. More specifically, I suppose, zooming in on some of those themes, we, we kind of identified things like challenging family dynamics or variations in family structure when the eating disorder kind of takes a hold. Reliance on patient consent. Um, so siblings or partners kind of feeling that they, they face barriers because of the patient consent process and um, how much they can or cannot be involved in the care of their sibling or a partner or loved one. Things like geographical constraints and kind of variations in the care that we receive based on where in the UK or Ireland that we live. And then there was, of course, because we did this project over lockdown, there was some mention of difficulties faced because of COVID-19 and lockdown. There are just a few of the themes. There was a a much richer data set that you you can see in full in the paper. In terms of the second bit of your question about sort of emotional experiences, sort of felt like the easiest way to answer that bit of the question is just to talk about some of the quotes that we, gathered so um, just a couple of quotes one from a female partner who said that you can feel so helpless as a partner so that emotion of, sort of helplessness coming up and that wasn't unique to that one individual that was a, a theme that we identified and then for a female sibling so a sister of someone with an eating disorder who said that uh, I felt so guilty reaching out for help so that emotion guilt came up a lot as well for both siblings and partners
0: thank you and w- would you say that siblings and partners in, in this situation have much of a, a social network or social support themselves can they talk to their own friends about what's going on
2: yeah so i guess that was that wasn't one of our specific research questions so it's difficult difficult to fully answer but based on the conversations we've had and the literature we've read we feel that that will probably vary So some siblings and partners do seek out their own support network, whilst this might not be available for others. So it can depend partly on kind of the support network, I suppose, that somebody already has, as well as their knowledge of of more formal support, I suppose, that's available to them. And it can also be dependent on lots of other factors, such as perhaps stigma. Um, So maybe not wanting to be perhaps associated in this area so there's a, a, a difficulty in mental health as a whole, sort of, there's still a lot of stigma, stigma out there, as well as perhaps feeling kind of that loyalty to their sibling or their partner. So they might not want other people to know, so that can make it more challenging to share as a carer what's going on. And also, so that kind of disloyalty, I suppose, in some circumstances, also perhaps personality So some people naturally want to gain support from others. And some people's perhaps coping strategies not just in this area but in general might be internalizing it or not so much not so much speaking speaking out loud or or finding other ways to to cope and also loved ones sometimes we think sort of impose their own rules in terms of how much they can divulge to others so this isn't just unique to siblings and partners but also parents might have have those issues as well kind of being unsure Sometimes I think, um, and this is something that we found in our paper as well, loved ones kind of feel like it's it's their, it's their loved ones' difficulty, not theirs. So maybe it's not their place to to be seeking support or or showing that they're struggling, which we know isn't the case, but when you're very much in that situation, I think that's what what it can feel like when you want naturally, if, if a loved one's struggling, you want the focus to be on them. And sometimes you might lose yourself a little bit in that. So I think it's it's quite a difficult question to answer directly because I think it can depend on lots of sort of family factors and individual factors as well.
0: I've certainly noticed that people who are living with an eating disorder often have to manage other people's expectations of the illness. And that that's quite unfair, obviously, and then really intensified with with lockdown and COVID. But it sounds like it's it's similar then for it's definitely something parents have to to deal with but there can be a wider attitude of well if that were my child I'd get them to eat kind of thing from from other people and I'd say there, there's certainly hesitation amongst siblings and partners that that you touched on there.
1: Yeah absolutely Barry and I think so we did a, a kind of separate paper exploring the experiences of parents and as you've identified there that experience definitely comes up feeling that stigma or judgment from other individuals who might not have so much of an understanding of eating disorders and kind of the factors that can influence them so yeah absolutely some overlap but also some unique difficulties for for these groups as well
0: and geographical and logistical issues seem to very much come up as a, as a big concern for people
1: yeah I don't think that's at all exclusive to eating disorders. I think it's kind of across the board in, in mental health care. But I think it can be particularly challenging with eating disorders. And one of those reasons is because geographical transitions are especially common in emerging adults who might be moving away for university or starting to kind of pick up their own lives elsewhere away from the family home. And this age group tends to overlap with the typical. Age of onset for eating disorders, so sort of adolescents or young adults. So there was a report from the University of Oxford that around 5% of the undergraduate population had been diagnosed with an eating disorder at the university, and 70% of those had received that diagnosis before arriving at the university. So 70% have then experienced a, a geographical transition and all of the difficulties that go alongside that, not only moving away from your family and support system, but also um, transitioning care in terms of actually GP, inpatient or outpatient support networks that you have built up. Um, so there's a lot there in terms of this age group and, and the difficulties that they experience in terms of moving. And then there's a the sort of added difficulty that especially for siblings of a loved one with an eating disorder, they themselves, might be in a similar age range so again either adolescents or young adults and they themselves might be moving away from the family home so we had um, a quote from a sibling who had moved away for university and and then they said that they would come back on university holidays and that was really hard because you weren't living with it every day and you just had to deal with it when you came back so that sort of emotional experience in in terms of the transition and the um, distance that you sometimes have from the family. So yeah, I think you've really picked up a a real key theme there within within the paper. I suppose it's also worth noting that in terms of actual support systems, social media and Zoom have become increasingly important, um, especially during the pandemic. So face-to-face support is brilliant because there can be a kind of increased sense of peer support and connection, but online groups are also a great source of support. And I spoke to Pam, who's one of the researchers in our team who I mentioned earlier, but she also runs carer workshops. And she said that when she ran these face-to-face, people would travel huge distances just for a two-hour workshop, whereas... Now that things are kind of moving towards online and everyone's a bit more familiar with setting, setting things up online, it has actually afforded people the luxury of attending these support groups from their own home. So she said that in a recent workshop that she ran, she had kind of attendees from all over the UK, but also France and Finland. So it's just kind of widening the net, I suppose, in terms of who can access that support. So whilst there are a lot of issues and difficulties, I think the pandemic has maybe given us a bit of a push to think creatively about how we can solve some of those problems.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think when people are in the the early stages, one of the first things they're faced with, I think, is an information deficit of where do I go, what's available. And that's, I think, why there's, there's so much value sometimes as well in the peer-to-peer contact, because who, who else is going to best understand what you're going through than, than other people in the same position.
2: And I think sort of the internet's being used increasingly to gain gain peer support in that way. Um, I, I suppose in kind of your personal life, sometimes because of perhaps a stigma, or as we said, kind of loyalty to the person struggling, um, it can be quite difficult to find peers in in that sense in your personal life, whereas online communities have been built sort of supporting people with particular conditions, but in a similar way are starting to come come for carers as well. With that sort of, like you said, that mutual understanding, people who kind of get it, getting that kind of validation and some information and resources as well. So some are run by, by kind of people with lived experience themselves, but it can be particularly helpful if they're kind of at least associated perhaps with a charity or moderated by people to help ensure that information is, is kind of accurate and as helpful helpful as it can be, but even even kind of the connection and, and conversations with peers on their own can be can be really valuable and beneficial. But it, it perhaps shouldn't be a replacement for for more formal support where it, where it's needed.
0: And is it easy to find those? I have to say, it it didn't occur to me when it until I read your study that maybe this is some, something siblings and partners were taking on themselves to, to, to use social media. And certainly p- people with an sort disorder do use it, I think, not just as a, to, as a tool of expression, but as a, a way of documenting the recovery.
1: Yeah, I think it's a good question. I don't have experience of trying to, to find them myself. So I suppose thinking about the conversations we had as part of this research study. Again, like everything, it really varies. Some people get lucky in that they might get signposted to these communities via engaging in broader support systems like charities. So I know that BEAT has a sort of broader online peer support network that they've set up for loved ones of those with an eating disorder. And if you happen to be signposted to that, and then within that you get signposted to more specific sibling support, that is brilliant but i don't think that there's an across the board consistent signposting kind of actions that are taking place to to help direct siblings or partners to those specific networks so it's probably a bit luck of the draw as to what support you receive and whether you get told about these these networks
2: and i think some kind of siblings and partners aren't aren't aware of aware of them in in that sense so in some of kind of one of our participants had mentioned when another participant was was speaking about using social media for support they'd others had kind of said hadn't thought of doing that and I suppose when you're when you're particularly I guess in the early stages of, of, of caring for a loved one all the focus is kind of on them and sometimes it doesn't from my understanding come into your head maybe oh actually there's probably things out there out there for me as well but even even within the focus groups we ran in terms of peer support there were sort of several examples of of empathy and support provided to each other and some some participants had sort of reflected that they'd they really appreciated being able to talk talk about about things and listen to others who understand who are perhaps outside of outside of the family network so we even within those short focus groups sort of saw some of the benefits of, of peer support.
0: Something that I've learned here in, in my role is that people very much need connections as, as part of their recovery, social connections, and they can have, say, a, a very formal support network, maybe through the, mil- the medical system, but also they need those kind of home, community, and social supports as well. It, And is this true of siblings and partners, would you say?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. So isolation is such a key characteristic of eating disorders, not only for the individual living with the eating disorder, but also for those family members as well. I think we've touched already on some of the stigma that individuals can face, kind of just lack of understanding or misunderstanding as to kind of how an eating disorder can, can present itself and how it affects the individual, but also the, the family as well. And then we've, we've spoken a little bit already about the benefits of peer support. I think it, it can be really important, especially at the start of, of someone's journey, kind of learning how to cope with their loved one being diagnosed with an eating disorder. So we had a brother in one of the focus groups who said that at the start you're just kind of thrown into it you don't have any hands to hold or footholds or paths with directions of which way to go you just have to figure it out so that's kind of just I suppose highlighting how isolating it must feel to to go through this almost on your own and the importance of linking linking up with others who who might be further along in the journey and might have some tips Techniques, support systems that they can signpost to, and as as Rachel said, there were some attendees um, at the focus group. So we had uh, a partner who said that it's been amazing to come here and listen to everybody else's different experiences. So thank you because it gives me hope, which I guess just highlights a bit more the positives of linking up with other partners or other siblings, other people who've lived through this and. That hope, I think, can, can often be overlooked in terms of when we're talking about peer support, it's not just about the practical things, it's about the emotional support as well and learning from people who are further on in the journey that actually, you know, we can get through it and with the right support in place, the family can be supported through this.
0: And your, your study talks about how health services might consider screening for concerns amongst siblings and partners. What do you think support service or treatment providers can, can learn from this research?
2: So I think, firstly, just having in mind the impacts on the family, um, sort of the wider family of, of having a mental health conditions such as an eating disorder, So for example, when I first started working in in healthcare, it was in a physical health children's hospital, and it took me quite a bit of time to sort of recognise how much life had changed for the siblings too, Um, yet very little support was provided to them, which is what sort of first prompted me to go into the area of research of how we can support carers, including siblings and partners of of loved ones with long-term and serious health conditions such as perhaps an eating disorder so firstly that need to be a bit more proactive from services as often carers like like we've discussed a bit today perhaps don't feel like it's their place to get support because it it is their loved one who's got the the disorder so even kind of reaching out to partners and siblings and validating their needs and making them aware of the support that's out there so, for example, the best practice standards by by BEAT, which we, we kind of based our, our research with, comparing how their the siblings and partners' experience sort of matched with, with those guidelines. They mentioned the importance of offering all carers a needs assessment and kind of monitoring their well-being to allow timely referrals to, to support. And the AED guidelines, so the other guidelines we looked at as well, also outline the right for carers to receive information and resources and support but also we understand that setting up something like that or services doing that in practice needs kind of resources and time and money and that can be be really difficult when services are already completely overwhelmed so firstly I think partly for clinicians and services to just be aware that of even kind of promoting what's already out there but also more research work needs to be done in terms of cost effective and feasible ways of of perhaps screening loved ones. So they can at least be as a minimum signposted to support and perhaps working alongside charities as well to help make sure the support is is more specialist as well, perhaps in the area of eating disorders.
1: Yeah. And I think Rachel's really hit the nail on the head there that you know, services are completely overwhelmed already. And there is a huge lack of research in this area. And if we want to develop evidence-based support for siblings and partners and other maybe underrepresented groups, we need more research first. We need to gather that evidence. We need to understand their perspectives, gain a deeper understanding actually of what those needs are before we rush to maybe addressing them. And qualitative research is great because it gives us a real rich sense of experiences and it gives us real data from the real experts who have lived through this. But there are limitations to that research as well, because it's impossible to talk to all siblings and all partners. And therefore, our paper probably does not represent the experiences of all siblings or all partners who've lived through this. So we can't we can't base Kind of recommendations for improvement on one study alone. We need lots of researchers, lots of professionals to work together to address this. Um, we do have in the research team at King's, in the eating disorders research team, a new PhD student called Anya Hennigan, who is going to be doing her PhD on this area within siblings. So she's going to be speaking to individuals between 11 and 25 years old who have a sibling. With an eating disorder and kind of exploring their experiences and talking about the support that they feel is required from professionals so hopefully that research will get up and running by the end of the year and it's just another example of how this field is starting to pay more attention to the needs of siblings hopefully also to the needs of partners that we know are unique to those of siblings so not to sort of lump them together right, I suppose But I guess, yeah, one of the takeaway messages is there's not enough out there. We need more understanding. Hopefully our national survey will also add to that understanding. But lots of work to be done before just rushing to solutions if we want those solutions to be evidence based.
0: Uh, That's a really good point. And it's it's great to hear someone will be taking on that research because I think in in general, the field of eating disorders is so underdeveloped. And if there's, if you look at the, the funding for eating disorder research, or if you look at the sheer volume, there is that statistic, I think it was in the Lancet Psychiatry a few years ago, with 200,000 studies published on depression, a mere 15,000 on eating disorders. Now, obviously, it's gone up with COVID, but we've a, a very long way to go to, to investigating all of the, the subtopics and needs that are out there.
1: Yeah absolutely and we know that one of the eating disorders anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental health condition so it's clearly a very important topic to be researching and as you said within the subtopics this kind of subtopic of um, carer support is um, completely overlooked as, as we've already spoken about today yeah.
0: Were there any eating disorder specific challenges that came up for people. I'm thinking of, say, those who had experience of a loved one with an eating disorder other than anorexia nervosa because sometimes people in that situation don't feel fully included in the conversation when either they're living with, say, bulimia nervosa binge eating disorder or OSFED or, or ARFID that they don't feel part of the story or picture of eating disorders. Is that something you maybe came across from siblings and partners as well?
1: I think unfortunately this probably highlights one of the limitations within our research in that it was not very representative of the whole spectrum of eating disorders. So most of most of our participants were those who had a loved one with a restrictive eating disorder. From our findings, we we cannot really understand more in terms of those other eating disorders that you mentioned, like RFID or binge eating disorder. So I guess, again, that's an area that needs more research. And this is why we we can't take one research study and kind of get going with changing the world based on, on one paper. And I think it's really important that we do slow down and acknowledge the limitations in the research and think about what else we need to explore before we move on to Jumping to solutions. So, I think in answer to your question, Barry, you've probably proposed a very good research study for someone out there to
2: work on. And I think, Barry, as you said, sort of, I guess within mental health research more broadly, eating disorders perhaps have less than other mental health conditions. And I think that kind of applies within eating disorder research as well. So, perhaps eating disorders such as anorexia do have more more research rightly given the mortality rate, but also say with, with our research project where most, most participants were loved ones of people with restrictive disorders, it does pose the question if, if these findings are perhaps representative of, of other carers with other types of, of disorders. So as, as both you and, and Hannah have, have both highlighted, we need to look into other, the specifics of, of what carers need perhaps with other eating disorders as well and i think it's particularly important because a lot of eating disorder services perhaps do cater more to conditions such as anorexia and bulimia and sometimes binge eating as well they seem to be sort of the big three often at least from my experience of what of working within eating disorders and my awareness of other services and some eating disorders such as our perhaps get get screened out and then it's sort of where do they get support and I guess when that happens for an individual with a eating disorder for a loved one as well, that that's really tricky as well. If, if their their loved one isn't getting the support for their eating disorder, then that probably means that they're not getting much support as well. And particularly as a lot of care resources perhaps focus more on eating disorders that we know more about. It's really crucial in in future that we do. We do look more broadly, I suppose. individual eating disorders as well rather than lumping them all together
0: and your your study when when it was published has there been any feedback since it's been out into the world
1: yes so we one of the things that we felt was really important was to send the study on to everyone who participated so sending it around to all siblings and partners who contributed to the research and we had some really nice feedback from some of them just sort of thanking us for doing the research but also thanking them for making that siblings and partners voice heard. So I suppose just some reflections from those who are actually involved which is always some of the best feedback to receive. I also have had a, a few small bits of contact from professionals who found it helpful including a family therapist working within the field and also a dietitian. So it's nice to hear that the research is kind of useful clinically um, and also useful kind of with a spectrum of professionals. So not just psychologists and psychiatrists, but also broader family therapists and then also into other sort of MDT workers like dieticians. So opening up, I suppose, those conversations and different ways of thinking for professionals across, across the fields.
0: And do you have any final thoughts to to add or anything that we maybe didn't touch on?
1: I guess just to say that I think the main takeaway from our research findings was that the current experiences of siblings and partners do not align for a lot of people with those standards and healthcare rights that have been published by BEAT and the Academy. There's lots of reasons for this and no one's to blame necessarily. Healthcare services are hugely stretched at the moment, but at the end of the day, it's not good enough for these individuals who are kind of facing these difficulties. I think we need, as we've said, we need proactive research. We need professionals and clinicians to work together to improve these experiences for groups that are often overlooked or completely forgotten. Hopefully our national survey and research like Anya's will help to inform some of the changes that need to happen. But there's a long way to go. And it's important that we actually stop it and look at the current picture and acknowledge the shortcomings, I suppose, in the care that we are currently providing for these groups.
0: Something I, I know is a, is a real challenge, and this tends to be for younger people, is to say, for example, reintegration, after treatment into secondary school. And I'd imagine then if, if you're a slightly older sibling, but also in the same school, that's gonna bring up some, some issues and worries as well, because there can be often a lack of understanding within the peer group, I think, of, of what eating disorders are about. And there can be obviously gossip and, and unhelpful comments towards people.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's interesting actually that that's not something that came up a huge amount in in our focus groups, and I wonder if that's perhaps something to do with the age range of, of kind of individuals who are in the study. It's I think, kind of from clinical experience is definitely a difficulty that people face. and this is why one qualitative study on its own is never going to be enough because if we didn't pick up on that, but we know clinically that that's an experience, we need more research to, to be done to, to kind of pick up on these unique factors and the intricacies of experience that people face. But it's certainly, certainly a, a relevant thing to hold in mind, definitely, yeah.
0: Thank you very much then, Hannah and Rachel, for coming on our podcast to discuss this. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
0: And that brings us to the end of today's discussion you can find a reference to the study in the episode notes. Thank you for listening.